together uh, as we do every week and have our perspective reframed and reshaped by the truth um, each and every week. John 19, obviously, is where we're going to be. Uh, you can see in the title, I don't normally draw attention, your attention to the title because I don't like creating titles for sermons, but it's something that I do every week. But you can see in the title this week, uh, I've used the word irony, and that's because this entire section is, feel, is filled with irony, um, the whole thing throughout it. Uh, it's a dominant theme in it, and I want to make sure that you don't that we don't misunderstand that concept. What are we talking about when we talk about irony? Well, irony doesn't just mean that something bad or unfortunate happens to you, like Ray Yane on your wedding day, right? Okay, so that's not necessarily what we're talking about when we talk about irony. A lot of movies and good literature uses uh, irony ironic situations and circumstances in order to draw your attention to the main point, right? So let me give you an example. The Wizard of Oz, okay? The whole movie tells the story of Dorothy and her new friends trying to reach the all-powerful Oz, and they believe that there's this all-powerful wizard who is there who can give her the ability to go back home. When she finally meets him, you know the story. He's just a guy behind a curtain fooling everyone, and in reality, and here's where it becomes ironic. It's not just that the unexpected happens and he's behind the curtain and you expect this powerful wizard and it's a guy pulling strings. That's part of it, but what really makes it ironic is that whole situation brings you to the point where you know that she actually has the ability to get back anytime she wants to on her own. She can get back, and that's the whole meaning of the story. And that's the emphasis that comes out in the situation and in the, the irony of the situation. You can think about the irony we've already encountered in the Gospel of John. This is a literary device that John uses throughout his Gospel. And there's one specific example, I'm sure you'll remember this, when Caiaphas, the high priest, says, before they've arrested Jesus, he says, it's good for one man to die for the entire nation. And John actually draws our attention to that and says he has no idea what he's talking about. But when he says this, he gives us something that is unexpected for him and is true, even though he doesn't think it's true. And it draws our attention to the main point of the story, that he's going to die for the entire nation. His words come to pass, even though he's unaware of it. It's the opposite way of what he expects, and it becomes the main point. It's the heart of the story of the Gospel of John. So when we get to this passage, it is thick with irony. And you have to pick up on this and you have to notice this so that you see the main point of this text, which is that even though Jesus is being mocked and tried and lied about, this whole thing exalts him and glorifies him and points us to who he really is and what his work is going to accomplish on our behalf. All of the ironic situations and words that happen in this text show us the real issue that's at stake in the trial of Jesus before Pilate here and his condemnation to death. So in this passage, we're going to see four ironies that exalt Jesus in his death. That's it. That's what we're looking at this morning. Four ironies that exalt Jesus in his death. And you can see the first one of these 
is in the first section in verses 1 to 3, the glorious king is mocked and scorned. So last time in chapter 18, we saw following Jesus throughout the evening before the day of his crucifixion, we saw him move from the Jewish high priest, the home of the Jewish high priest, to the Roman authorities. He's handed over in chapter 18 and verse 28 to the Roman authorities, taken to the praetorium, the governor's headquarters, specifically to Pilate, who is the prefect over Judea at that time. Now, Pilate, we learned last week and know from history, is no fan of the Jews and doesn't have a great relationship with the Jews, but he obviously has to work with them as they're under his governorship and they're the the local authorities, as it were. But as he receives Jesus, he's very hesitant as he starts to hear about him and hear from him, he's very hesitant to condemn him to death. That's what the Jews want to happen quickly and easily, but Pilate is hesitant to do that. And after questioning Jesus, he says this, if you look back in chapter 18 and verse 38. After he'd said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. And so then he offers to release someone because it's Passover and this was a tradition. And the Jews cry out for a political prisoner to be released. We talked about this, an insurrectionist possibly, one who sought to overthrow Rome's authority and power, a man named Barabbas. They cry out for him to be released in verse 40. They cried out again, not this man, not Jesus, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber or an insurrectionist. So at this point, we transition to chapter 19, and Pilate has not changed his mind about Jesus not being guilty. There's not something that happens in between 18 and 19 where Pilate suddenly is convinced that Jesus is deserving of death. But now we get to chapter 19 and and verse 1, and Pilate decides to take a different tactic to try to release Jesus. He's offered for one prisoner to be released. That doesn't work. So now he's going to try something different. Look at verse 1 of chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Now, if you're familiar with the story of Jesus being crucified, if you've ever seen uh, any movies of him uh, depicting his crucifixion, most of the time when we think of Jesus being beaten before his crucifixion, we think of one particular beating, maybe you've heard of this, called the scourging. There's actually a Latin word for that type of beating that Jesus did undergo. And in that type of beating, it's a a very intense implement that they use to whip someone. It's got all of these cords of leather that go off of it, and there are chunks of metal or bone or glass on the ends of those uh, strips of leather, and they would uh, swing it and stick it to a person's back and then rip it off, and skin and flesh and muscle would come off with it. I mean, unbelievably horrific whipping and beating that someone would take, And you did that sort of beating when you were going to send someone to the cross anyway. And a lot of times someone would die when they received that sort of of whipping. In that particular uh, beating, they would be tied to a post with their hands around it, and they would just suffer throughout the entire thing. That was called a scourging, and once that was administered, there was no going back. Now, it may surprise you to know, maybe you've heard this before, maybe you haven't, but there were actually 
in total, three different levels of whippings or beatings that the Romans would give to prisoners. That one, called the verbatio, is the worst. And that's the one we commonly think of when we think of Jesus being whipped before his crucifixion. And that does happen later on in the story, even though John doesn't mention it specifically. But what I think happens here is a different type of beating. So Jesus was whipped or beaten twice, and this was the least dramatic. Although you would not want to have this happen to you this afternoon, right? But this is the least dramatic and the least intense of the the beatings and the whippings that Jesus undergoes. And it was not nearly as horrific as the scourging. And because of the timeline, when you start comparing the other Gospels, I think that least one is the one that, is, that uh, John is talking about here. So why did Pilate give him a lesser whipping to begin with? Well, I think because he couldn't find fault with Jesus, if you compare this to Luke, as part of the reason why. Luke actually states this. He's trying to whip him and then release him. So that's why I think it's the lesser one. But because of that, because he couldn't find fault with him, he wants to satisfy the Jews, right? So he's trying to punish him and show them that he's punished him. And then he's hoping that they'll just sort of be good with that. They'll see Jesus is not a threat anymore and that he can go ahead and release him. He's also hoping to teach Jesus a lesson during this, right? Jesus has obviously, according to Pilate, done something to cause this sort of anger from the Jewish authorities. Pilate doesn't want this happening, and so he's like, look, whip him, teach him a lesson, and then send him out, and hopefully he won't want anything like this to happen to him again. But he doesn't just whip him in this case, and I think that's what he's going at. He actually does some other things to try to humiliate him so that the Jews will not see him as a threat any longer. Look at verses 2 and 3. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. After they whip him, they go into this whole scene back inside of uh, Pilate's headquarters in the praetorium there. And of course, you've got a group of Roman soldiers, right? They're uh, probably bored a lot of the time and it's a bunch of guys together, and they are going to take a full advantage in their ruthlessness, trained to kill. They're going to take full advantage of mocking and having fun of a Jewish prisoner here. The thorns that they're using are probably those of a date palm, and they're very long and very sharp. They would have been sharp enough uh, to, today, they're sharp enough to even pierce through plastic, So no doubt when they're put on someone's head and forced down on top of their head, they cause significant pain, bleeding, uh, and uh, would have been an intense experience to have. They also find an old garment probably lying around there and put it on him, making him out to be a king, and you can see what happens. They mock him, they uh, tease him, they slap him, and they beat him, shove him around a bit, in the middle and gener- in middle of the group of soldiers and generally make fun of him there and have some, a good time at his expense. So what's the irony in this circumstance here? Why does John recount this and what does it tell us about Jesus? Well, here they're mocking Jesus as if he's a king. 
They're pretending, they don't think he's a king, but they're pretending that he is a king so that they can mock him. And ironically enough, despite what they can't see, this is the king of the universe, the true and glorious king who has created everything and who rules over everything that has been made. I mean, we read this all the way back in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And then this Word, we read later in John 1, became flesh. The one who created everything, made everything, is the light and life of men. This Word eternally existent with God, being God, became flesh, took on human form and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. We see his glory to truly perceive who he is by faith. You can see his glory as the king who took on flesh, the creator God, full uh, glory as of the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so that's who he really is. And these soldiers have the creator of everything in front of them, existed before time began, in splendor with the Father, and they are mocking him. He's worthy of nothing but adoration and praise and glory. He's worthy of being, uh, of people bowing before him and honoring him and worshiping him. And here, they're doing the exact opposite. And he's allowing himself to be mocked and scorned. Why? In order to save. He's putting himself through this in order to save those he loves. He's lowering himself and suffering in his humility so that through that we can truly see his glory. 1 Peter 2. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed." He was mocked, beaten, scorned, and reviled, even though he's the king of the universe and deserving of nothing but glory, so that by his wounds, you and I can be healed. What an ironic situation for the true king to be mocked by petty Roman soldiers here. But that brings our salvation, and that brings us to our second irony. The Son of God is accused of blasphemy in verses 4 through 7. So, after beating Jesus, allowing the soldiers to have some fun, Pilate goes back out to the Jews. There's this constant back and forth going in and out because the Jews won't come into his headquarters. So he goes back out to the Jews to inform them about what has happened. Verse 4, Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So, Jesus came out, verse 5, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, behold the man. No doubt Pilate here is presenting Jesus in this way for a specific reason. What's he hoping to accomplish by parading him out, bleeding, having just been beaten, 
having been slapped around, having this robe on him and crown of thorns, bringing him out in a mocking way to the crowd. What is Pilate hoping to accomplish by this? He's trying to show the Jews that Jesus is not a threat to anybody. I mean, look at this guy. He's essentially saying, behold this guy, this man here. This guy is not a threat to you at all. What sort of king gets beaten and mocked like this? Not a king that anybody would want to follow is Pilate's line of reasoning here. But I want you to notice what Pilate says in verse 5. He says as he brings him out, behold the man. Now, Pilate's words are dripping with sarcasm here, right? You don't hear the tone of them because we're reading this text, but they're dripping with sarcasm. But the Apostle John, I think, records these particular words, this little phrase here, because he's pointing us to a much deeper truth about Jesus. When you read the Bible, especially when you get to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5, which I'll show you a verse in just a second, but when you read the Bible, it is as if there are only two men that have ever been created. That's how Paul frames up all of human history. You've got Adam, and you've got Jesus. It's the story of two guys, two men. Romans 5.17, For if, because of one man's trespass, Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And so Paul's point here is, look, there's two men. And you, as a human being, are either in Adam and still in your sin and in the place of judgment under God's wrath. You are in Adam. And that's how we're all born into this world. We are born in our father Adam under his judgment and under sin. Or the other option is there's now a new man and you, if you are in him, this new man in Christ, you are released from judgment and death that came through the first man, and you are given freedom and new life in the new man. And I think John is sort of hinting in that, at that here through the sarcasm and through the irony of what Pilate says. This is the man, the man who is the new man, through whom we receive new life, release from judgment, and victory over death. But of course, everyone who's there misses this completely. Look at verse 6. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews are not satisfied with this base-level whipping and the mockery and the scorn here. They want Jesus crucified. They want him done away with. And Pilate here expresses his frustration. It's the second part of verse 6 there. Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. What's, what, from Pilate's perspective, what has happened is the Jews have come to him wanting his judgment. They want his official position on Jesus and he's given it to them. He's proclaimed him innocent, and now they're not really wanting his official judgment. They just want what they want. They want to use Pilate 
and his ability to give the death sentence in order to condemn Jesus. And now, because Pilate is persisting in proclaiming Jesus innocent and he finds no guilt in him, now we actually get to the heart of the Jews' concern over Jesus. Look at verse 7. Here's the real problem that they have. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. Now, they talk about the law here, and here's the passage that they're most likely referring to. Leviticus 24, 16. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. And so they're saying, look, He has been blasphemous because he's claimed to be equal with God. This is something that has happened in the Gospel of John. You can go back to John chapter 5 and verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so they tried to uphold this passage from Leviticus in this uh, in the earlier in the, the book of John, in the Gospel of John, chapter 5. They were trying to kill him because of this. And then in John chapter 10, I'm going to start in verse 24 and read a little bit, and you see another example of them wanting to kill Jesus because they're accusing him of blasphemy because of his claims to deity. Verse 24, So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you did not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one." The Jews, verse 31, picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. And so there's been this issue throughout the Gospel of John, and now they bring it up to Pilate here and make this accusation in front of him. But here's where the irony sits thick on this passage. And you probably already know where this is going. They're making this accusation saying Jesus is worthy of death because he has claimed to be God. What if he is who he claimed to be? And that's what they're, the option that they're not even entertaining here. What if he's exactly who he claimed to be? If that's the case, and this is not blasphemy at all. What if the Jews are wrong and this isn't blasphemy and the law doesn't apply here because he's speaking the truth about who he is? What if John 1 and verse 18 was accurate? No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, who came in the flesh, he has made him known. What if that were true? What if the Son of God was right in front of them and they couldn't see it. Now that question, that issue, is clearly at the heart of John's gospel. 
over and over again, he brings us back to this. And it's one of the most important questions for you and I to wrestle with and to answer. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? He's a real human being who walked the earth and was crucified. And the claim is that he rose from the dead. That is historically accurate outside of the Gospels. And so you have to wrestle with the presentation of Jesus of Nazareth in the Gospels for all sorts of reasons. And you have to reckon with the reality that he may be exactly who he claimed to be. And if he is who he claimed to be, that has an unbelievable difference, makes an unbelievable difference in your life and in mine. And if that's true, if he is who he claims to be and who this situation tells us that he is, then the response of the, the, or the person to this and that this gospel calls for is to believe in him. And when we talk about belief, we're not just saying check a box of agreement like you do with a, a terms of service. Oh yeah, sure, I get this. I'm good. I think this about Jesus. That's not what John is calling for here when you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. The only proper response is a faith that turns your whole life over to him and follows him in his way and imitates him and learns from him as a disciple because he's God and he's the truth and he's the Savior. Now, this accusation that the Jews make and what they claim about Jesus, that he, he himself claims to be the Son of God, this sits very differently for Pilate it lands on him in kind of a, an unsuspecting way for us. It's, it's a little bit surprising how he responds to this. And that brings us to our next bit of irony in this passage. The sovereign God is treated as powerless. So we've seen that the glorious king is mocked and scorned, which points us to his glory. We've seen that the son of God is accused of blasphemy, which points us to his deity, and now we've seen, or we will see in this coming passage, verses 8 through 11, that the sovereign God, absolute authority, is treated and thought to be powerless. Treated as if he were powerless and thought to be powerless. Look at Pilate's response here as we get going in this section. When Pilate heard this statement about Jesus claiming to be the Son of God, he was even more afraid. Why would he be afraid at this? Well, remember... Pilate is a Roman. That's a very obvious point to make here. But to be Roman was not, you did not believe in a single deity. If you are Roman, you believe in an entire pantheon of gods. And those gods are often very human-like. There are lesser gods, there are greater gods. And if you are Roman, you believe that the emperor is a son of God. You believe that he is in some sense divine or divinely empowered or some level between human and deity. And so if you're a Roman, you think that the divine does interact with humanity and oftentimes there will be these men walking among you who are divinely enabled and empowered. So when Pilate hears this accusation here from the Jews, especially after he's interviewed Jesus and found him quite compelling and can't find any guilt or fault in him, and now he hears that he has claimed to be a son of God, 
Pilate would have thought of it that way, not the son of God, but a son of God. Now you're a little bit afraid. What am I dealing with here? What is going on in this situation? So he goes back in and starts to question Jesus again. Look at verse 9. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? Jesus keeps silent this time, but Jesus gave him no answer. And so when he keeps silent, this provokes frustration from Pilate, and he responds in verse 10. Look there. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? From Pilate's perspective, this is true. But in verse 11, Pilate is exposed worse than the Wizard of Oz is. Look at verse 11. Jesus says, Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who has who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Now, Jesus' statement, let's break it down here. There's two parts to it. You can see very clearly. The first part is, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. The second part is the implication of that. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Let's take the first part. He's not denying that Pilate has some authority in the situation here. He does. Legitimate, Romans 13.1, type of authority. All authority Governmentally that exists is ordained and put in its place by God, even Pilate. But Jesus also makes the point here that there's one much, much greater who has given that authority over to Pilate. There's a reason that he has authority because it's been bestowed on him from someone who is much greater. Now, clearly this first part here of Jesus's statement is talking about God's absolute sovereignty over the circumstances. And it's vital for you and for me as we read this to keep this truth front and center. When you think about the crucifixion and all that Jesus went through, you have to remember that he is absolutely sovereign over everything that's happening. God, Jesus, doesn't simply allow events to transpire and sort of work where he can. Ooh, it'd be good if I did that here. Ooh, in response to that, I'll do that here. That's not how this goes. He doesn't simply outmaneuver his enemies to get what's, what he wants. He's a little more powerful, a little more knowledgeable, and so he can work in ways that they can't quite work. That's not how it goes. He is absolutely sovereign. Charles Spurgeon described God's sovereignty like this in relationship to the believer. But keep this in mind. There is no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them all. There is nothing for which the children ought more earnestly to contend than the doctrine of their master over all creation." The kingship of God over all the works of his own hands, the throne of God, and his right to sit upon that throne. Absolute sovereignty is what we have to believe about God. Nothing is outside of his authority. And you see that sovereignty put on display with great clarity here. 
You see his love for his creatures displayed by his sovereignty because he decided to go to the cross. He took up that right and that authority himself in order to save us because of his great love for us. And at the same time, you get the second part of this statement. And the second part of this statement is absolutely true. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Within God's sovereignty, human beings are still responsible for their actions. We can't claim to be robots because we're not robots. We make real decisions and are responsible for those decisions and actions. We are responsible and God rules. Pilate was responsible for his cowardly weakness in not releasing Jesus here. But Jesus makes the point here that those who betrayed Jesus, Judas, and the one who delivered him over to Pilate, Caiaphas, and the high priest, the Jewish leaders, they have the greater sin. They are even more responsible and more wrong for what they have done. Peter put it like this in Acts chapter 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And let me just say, that word foreknowledge does not mean that God just saw in advance what would happen and decided it would happen. It's not what it means. It's a, a fore-choosing and a foreordaining in advance. It's talking about the actions that God takes, the definite plan de being decided in advance. According to his definite plan and his fore-choosing and ordaining, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The irony here is that as Jesus goes to the cross, he is humble and silent, and yet he holds all authority, all the authority in the universe in his hands. And he does that, holding all authority, being able to break out of this and free himself at any moment that he wants to, and yet he submits to this in humility and silence in order to save you and to save me. And it's in that irony, the authority and the silence, that we see his glory. John put it like this, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And the juxtaposition of power and humility is shocking and beautiful. It's attractive to see someone who has this authority and this power, and yet is so gentle and kind and humble and exercises his power in order to love and to save his people. And bringing those two together should cause us to exalt him and to worship him. Let's move on to the fourth irony here. The fourth one is that God's chosen people deny their true king, starting in verse 12. So Pilate's perspective on Jesus continues, he, the perspective that there's no guilt in him, and now the Jews take a new tactic to try to manipulate Pilate into giving them what they want. 
Look at verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. And Pilate understood what they would mean here. The emperor, Caesar, would not allow any challenge to his position or his authority, and the Jews could very easily present Pilate as sort of looking past this challenge to the authority of the Roman Empire if he released Jesus. The tactic used by the Jews here is underhanded, it's manipulative, and it works. Look at verse 13. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. So Pilate's trying to maintain some resemblance of authority here. He knows he's been gotten. He knows what he has to do. And so he brings Jesus out to a place that he normally would have pronounced judgment on. So he gives his official judgment here. And in, in this official judgment and condemnation of Jesus, we get another little bit of irony. Look at the first part of verse 14. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. Now, I want to be clear about something here. If you were to go back this afternoon and read Mark's gospel account of this, it would say that Jesus was condemned or handed over at the third hour. That's not what John says here. He says the sixth hour. So what's going on? Is this a contradiction in the gospel accounts? I don't think so. I think that John is using a different way of rendering time. Their time is not as concrete as ours. They didn't have wristwatches on their wrists. They didn't have clocks, a clock tower in the middle of the square to look at, right? And so it's a little bit uh, more nebulous in how they determine time. But John is probably using the Roman ordering of time, which would have made the sixth hour about 9 a.m., Mark is probably using a more Jewish ordering of time, which would have made the sixth hour or the third hour about 9 a.m. And so it's also true that they weren't exact in their timekeeping. They did it based on the sun in the sky. And so it's about the the sixth hour. So was it a little bit after the sixth hour, 9 a.m.? May have been 10 a.m. or 10.30. And, you know, there's, there's all sorts of ways that this could not be a contradiction here. But either way, I think John uses this phrase, the sixth hour, because he wants us to understand something about Jesus's judgment and condemnation. The sixth hour, this time of day, is the time when the Jews would have been actively beginning to prepare their Passover meal. You can see here it's the day of preparation. It's Friday, and they were preparing for the Passover Sabbath day, which would have been a very, very important day and would have been the next day. And so right at this moment, when Pilate is announcing the official condemnation of Jesus at this place of judgment, all over Jerusalem, Jews would have put down their work, they would have removed all leaven from their household, and they would have begun putting to death the Passover lamb. And it's right at this moment, when all over the city lambs are being killed, that Jesus, the true Passover lamb, is formally or formerly, formally condemned to die on a Roman cross. And so Pilate here makes this pronouncement in verse 14, behold your king. The Jews respond, verse 15, they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. 
Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Now, when they shout this out, you understand what's happening here, right? I mean, these are the Jewish leaders. They believe in the Old Testament. They hold to the Old Testament. And the promise of God in the Old Testament is that God would be their king and that he would ultimately bring one of their own, a Davidic king, to reign over them. The messianic hope was something that they knew from the Old Testament. And so when these Jewish authorities pronounce this here, that we have no king but Caesar, what they're essentially saying is they are denying the messianic hope. They're denying God's authority over them. And they're giving themselves up to a worldly authority just out of hatred for Jesus and a desire to see him condemned to die. And it's this moment that the words of John's prologue come true, or John 1, verses 9 through 11. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. He came to his own people, and they rejected him. And the irony is almost overwhelming here as they deny the true king. And yet it's in this moment that Jesus is condemned to die and the path of salvation becomes clear as he will be lifted up on the cross and suffer so that we can be saved. Listen to the next verses in John chapter 1. But... To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's in his rejection and in the salvation that he brings that we see his glory, full of grace and truth, most clearly. It's in the irony of the glorious Son of God being lifted up in condemnation. It's in that irony, in that circumstance, that he will draw all people to himself. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're thankful and grateful for this passage. And I pray that these, the way John has described your trial and your condemnation here, using irony, would stick with us. The unexpected happens. The opposite of what is true is said. And I pray that over and over again that the the irony of this circumstance would point us to your glory and your exaltation and to the salvation that you have brought. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.